News. 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 New York City. FAQ NYC podcast getting more and more interesting by the minute. FAQ. It's FAQ NYC, the New Yorkers podcast from the newsroom by and for New Yorkers. The city. I'm Christina Greer here with Katie Honan and Harry Siegel. Good morning. Hello. Hi. Hey. Later in this episode, we're going to play an interview with Eric Adams, our mayor, speaking with Josh Greenman from our friends at Vital City about reducing gun violence, including an aggressive defense of the NYPD, doing more so-called quality of life policing, such as using 311 calls to target gun violence and using RoboCop technology for, quote unquote, safety. That's my phrase, not his. You can hear the whole thing here and find out much more, including a transcript of that interview and many of the excellent articles at vitalcitynyc.org. Mary Adams, as he knows, has a standing invitation to join us here on FAQ NYC to talk about this and so many other issues. So, Mary Adams, if you're listening, you and your friends, uh, please feel free to join us. It'll be a great, great conversation. So, let's Power. jump right in. <laughs> Katie, we can't say that if we want oh. the man to come on. Oh, right. Okay. I'm sorry. <laughs> Queens. Prove us wrong, sir. Queens, I can't take you anyway. Um, so, yeah. Uh, Mayor Adams, if you feel like coming on, I think it'll be a great conversation. Um, okay. Let's jump right in with some of the news from another jam-packed, dare I say, soaking week in New York City. Ooh. So, we're going to get to that. A few other things. A lot of Adams. Perfect week to come on, sir. Uh, his chief advisor, Ingrid Lewis Martin, said there would not be any answer to New York City's migrant crisis unless the Biden administration and the federal government, quote, close the borders, unquote. Adding in the same local TV interview that, quote, it's important the federal government declare New York City as a state of emergency, unquote. Others in the Adams administration tried to distance it from his chief advisor's statement. Uh, the latest of many from City Hall that echo GOP talking points and end up getting repeated uh, by politicians across the aisle nationally. Speaking of Republicans, Donald Trump's here. As we're recording this Monday morning, he is in town for the opening day of the penalty phase of his civil fraud trial, where a judge has already found that the ex-president committed fraud based on uncontested evidence by inflating his assets. Uh, Trump is very angry and has mean things to say about the judge. He's here in person. Shall see where that goes. Back to Adams. Alan Roscoe, longtime gay rights activist, head of Manhattan's Jim Owens Liberal Democratic Club, and an erstwhile ally of the mayor, is launching a, quote, coalition for mayoral choice to try and find a progressive to run against the mayor in 2025. The Daily News, following up and reporting right here in the city, found two very unlikely Big dollar donors to the 2021 Adams campaign who say they don't recall writing those checks. Mm. And a third who flatly denied doing so. But we got to start here in this soggy, soggy week with Mayor Adams' conspicuous absence ahead of Friday morning's record rainfall that ravaged New York City and his absurd insistence afterward that his administration had done a good job communicating to New Yorkers about it, even as he didn't speak about the rain publicly until after most of it had fallen at nearly noon on Friday. After roads were flooded, subways were shut down, and principals, teachers, students, and parents were left to figure out what's up, having already made it to school without any public guidance to that point, even as some 150 schools around the city experienced flooding. Uh, damn mess, in my view unnecessary mess. We sort of had a warning with the smoke, yet here we are again. And it wasn't really the city's response. It was the lack of communication about how severe this was and the timing of that. Uh, but Katie, you were covering the storm yeah. in City Hall on Friday. What's up? First, Harry, I know you had a flooded basement. Mm. My apartment on the fourth floor, I need new windows. It was raining inside. I don't know. I think it was just so much rain. But yeah, that's me. That's, that's personal. That's the very least of what happened. Yeah, you know. I, but a lot of it going around and just people experiencing this, you know, literally drip by drip. And it, it's really damaging. And here's the way I view it. You know, on Thursday, I saw a Storm Team 4 tweet that said something like, you know, 
it's very rare for us to issue a warning like this. And I thought at the time, oh, this is going to be really bad. And I actually sort of was kicking myself because I didn't reach out to City Hall, you know, to say, what's the plan? But I guess I don't work for OEM. I'm not the commissioner. And a lot of times they don't respond to me <laughs> uh, when I text them. So I got busy, you know, and I woke up early on Friday and, and you're just seeing, you're hearing the rain and you're seeing this forecast and it just got worse every 10 minutes. It just seemed to get worse. Um, seeing the usual spots that we're used to seeing the flooding, you know, on Fourth Avenue in Brooklyn and Williamsburg was flooded, Greenpoint, um, the subway, waterfalls. And there was just no word from the mayor. And I, and the larger context of this is this is a mayor who, as I pointed out, and when he wants to get his message across, he does tweet after tweet after tweet after tweet after tweet after tweet. But for this, there really wasn't that much. Um, and yeah, that's what we Not had. That and much. Then, I mean, there, there was literally nothing. Like he's like, oh, uh, uh, Mayor Adams, who's very much about Mayor Adams and and me and my city and my cops and my my firefighters and my teachers and my so on. But he's like, no, no, we're a team here, and and my team did all the right advisories. And then yeah. you know, reporters like, what, what what does that mean to Zach Iskall, the OEM commissioner? And he's like, oh, I did. Uh, I was on Fox and uh, uh, once in the radio once. That was it. Right. Well, we so they. This is the thing. So at around eight thirty on Friday, eight forty five a.m., we had Deputy Mayor for Communications and whatever Fabian mm-hmm. Levy, mm-hmm. or who is just now an overpaid spokesperson because they haven't hired for his old job. Just tweets: mm-hmm. "Be careful out there, NYC." And then his next tweet was to jump all over friend of the pod Ben Max for pointing out correctly that the mayor had not spoken and not said anything. And I think in dealing with Fabian, and I would say this to his face, so it's I don't have any problem saying this on the pod. I think he has two modes. One is kind of nervous. And, you know, I've seen this with some of the asylum seeker stuff at the beginning, like didn't know what to do. And the other is just so rude and like pit bull, but a bad pit bull. And I just, in dealing with that, and, and I kind of thought like at a certain point, you know, his tweet was remarkable that you were ignoring that NYC mayor and NYC emergency management actually sent out releases on the storm yesterday. He's also holding a short briefing on this shortly. That was at 10.04 a.m. The mayor didn't talk to 11.45. Kayla, another spokes, another comms person just was like, we we sent out a press release for last night. And I'm thinking that doesn't do anything. All my friends who are teachers are texting me. My schools are flooded, right? 150 schools, quote, took on water. That was Chancellor Bank's term. I didn't realize buildings. I thought just boats could take on water. I think when it's a building, they flood. These, watching that briefing, and and I- They didn't hear the schools, the principals, people I talked to, I'm sure you have the same. They didn't hear shit from uh, DOE. They didn't hear, pardon my Latin, shit from City Hall. So the, we made the decision to keep schools open because that's where children are safe. I'm not even- arguing necessarily yeah, about course. whether or not you do that but if you do it you communicate that before the flooding when you know the rain is coming at 7 a.m the night before the idea you made the decision but you just didn't bother mentioning it like you had an emergency declared a state of emergency but you didn't say it out loud for a couple hours another thing fabian said you know it's it's risible i, I don't mean to pile on and it wasn't even the the city's response was bad it, it, but this sort of communication matters it's so fundamental and then Adams has doubled down since. He said, uh, you know, if you didn't know about this, you must have been hiding under a rock, which is just oh nonsense. And he's stuck. Yeah. Because you, you say I was right no matter what. That's how he he rolls. But, like, he's got to do better next time. This is mortifying. It's just, uh, you know, he's a smart guy who wants to do well. And and the lack of discipline and not communicating any of this beforehand and then insisting that was all right, it's it's mind-blowing. Well, it really think, is Trumpian. I th- well, Trumpian, Cuomoian, like, all the things. There's a thread starting with Queens. But I mean, is it communication? Is it organization? Or is it both? Because we're on crisis number two right now. First, it was the smoke. I don't know what happens when I leave this city. Things just pop off. I wasn't here for the smoke with the Canadian wildfires. I wasn't here for the biblical flooding. Part of it is like, you know, I have some sort of empathy, sympathy, because listen, this is what the eighth largest waterfall we'd ever seen rainfall in the yeah. history of the city, right? So it's like, okay, there's a certain level of planning. You don't know that it's going to be, you know, we're seeing animals lining up two by two. So there's that part. But if you're not communicating and you're not necessarily organized, don't double down. Like that's, I think that's 
that's my Achilles heel with this particular mayor. Who uh, I agree with you, Harry. I do think he's smart, and I do think he loves the city. I'll give him both of those things. Um, he did ten press spots right after, right? Yeah. He'd be like, no, no, we did good, dude. Well, that's after dude, the You could have done that. You could have done that the day before to cover and just say, hey, it's important. You know about this. But here's the thing: you didn't, and so don't. I don't want to use since we're using Latin phrases, but don't pee on my head and tell me it's raining, right? <laughs> Pun intended. Because Judge, or philosopher like, Judge Judy, right? <laughs> if I were Judge, oh my God, give me like one one millionth of Judge Judy mm-hmm. down. Um, but you know the issue is thus: do not double down when you all have faltered. And I'm not expecting you to fall on your sword and come in front of the city and be like, I, you know, I messed up, whatever. But don't say, oh, yeah, I've been communicating. We have phones. We have televisions. Like, we know that you haven't been communicating. So leave that aside and just work on sort of the next thing. I think it is interesting that they've already sort of said, hey, there's some smoke coming on Monday. So just be aware. Overcompensating. Okay, thanks. (laughs) Like, sure. Um, but I do think we're we're 0 for 2 right now in sort of natural disasters. We know, as you know, urbanists have been telling us um, time and time again, that, like, things are only going to get more intense and more complicated in cities. So, like, he has to be on, on top of this because we can't, you know, if we have a snowpocalypse and he's not on it, that's 0 for 3. I don't necessarily think that that hurts him in 2025 per se because it's far away, but it is something that people remember. Um, and it's something that people can bring up in debates when they talk about lack of organization, communication, effectiveness, et cetera. We, we shouldn't forget, and it was not as bad, the rain, but there was a right before Christmas of last December, there was another rainstorm where especially in parts of um, Southeast Queens and um, Brooklyn, there was flooding. And that's the storm where the mayor was in the Virgin Islands and never told anybody. And w- when he was criticized about it, he was like, you know, attacking the press. Well, my mommy died and I've never taken a break. And, you know, I bet your mom is still alive, which is a, an odd personal attack because, A, you don't know. A, the reporters are much younger, right? So here's the thing. You're going to tell someone who's in his 30s, the likelihood just looking at the lifespan of someone's uh, whatever. The chances of someone's parent being alive at a certain age is higher. But then you also don't know people's realities or what they're doing or or, or what their lives are. And it also wasn't true that he said he hadn't taken a break because didn't you go to Morocco or Monaco? Sorry, Monaco. Didn't you go on Brock Pierce's jet to Somos in Puerto Rico in 2020? You know, so it's not true when he says these things, but he gets very defensive. And that was a communications complete bungled mess because his comps team didn't know where he was. So that's the other concern. You know, I know a lot of times when I see people defend the mayor, they're like, oh, it, it's it, they too join in and attacking the press. I saw some rude tweets in the depths of Twitter on Friday. Oh, the media was just mad that he he went out on Friday to see places. They were just mad they weren't told. No, he did not go out of his way to go check on Sheepshead Bay or Canarsie. He happened to be there because he was there for a wake. I'm not saying he shouldn't have gone to the wake, but this is sort of, you were in a car driving, you probably were were on the Belt Parkway looking out the window. So these are the concerns. These are the questions. I do not know why he he and his team are so bad at these sort of natural disasters. It seems like a complete layup to wildfire smoke is coming. Let me put out a video. Let me call a last minute press conference. Oh, we have historic rainfall predicted in a short amount of time that can cause severe flooding. Let me just... Put out a video. Let me have a press conference. Let me do a couple TV hits. Let me go on new, like it's, it's, it's not rocket science, but of course on Thursday night, he was at a fundraiser. So for himself. So that's the other thing that we need to look at. Like what, how is he prioritizing his time? How much control um, his communications ha- team has over all this stuff? But, you know, and hopefully we'll see how many people filed complaints and claims for damages. And we'll see today what any, if we can get any numbers. Professor Griff, yes. given all this, given all these progressives who keep being like, we got to do something, is anyone is anyone doing anything? It, I mean, it seems to me, like, you know, we're, we're pounding on the guy. I think part of why he can be lax about this and undisciplined is because I don't think he, he feels serious political pressure and competition coming up that way. Right, right on. Um, I mean, and this is what sort of always worries me about politics. I mean... Taking it back to Bill de Blasio 2017, he didn't feel any serious threat from Sal Albanese 
and didn't have to make any promises. And then we see we got nothing for the second term. Um, and if this man does not stop coming up in my Twitter feed with this making out. But anywho, mm, um, so with Eric Adams, I do worry about the second term in the sense that if he doesn't have a significant challenger, there is, I mean, this isn't just Eric Adams, it's any politician. What What is my motivation to really campaign to ask to keep the job and to present a forward vision for what I want to do in a second term, right? It's one thing to articulate what you have done, but it's another thing to lay out like why it is that you want to stick around and you want me to vote for you to stick around for a second term. I don't see thus far a coordinated effort on the left, like the left of the mayor. It's a lot of people who have gripes about what he's doing or not doing. It's a lot of people who are just like, he's a cop. We got to get rid of him. But are they talking to, you know, left-leaning New Yorkers who low-key like a lot of his policies? Are they talking to people who were, you know, just like, oh, I don't see any rats. So, or I don't see as many rats. Or, you know, the mayor's not making me integrate my schools. So, whatevs. Um, I don't think that thus far Eric Adams has made a case for him not to get reelected. So, until the left can either figure out the messaging as to why he shouldn't be reelected or figure out a candidate who is going to go beyond, isn't he so terrible? But it's like, walk us through why it is not just that he's so terrible, but like, but what are you going to do? Because if, if folks, we talked about this all the time, right? There's crime. And then there's the perception of crime. Eric Adams in that great interview with Josh Greenman that you all will listen to after the podcast. I mean, he's sort of laying out like, listen, crime is down. Like, unfortunately it's, in hotspot neighborhoods where it's still popping off, but like quality of life stuff, I'm working on it. And I'm working on it for people who go to the polls. So I don't see the messaging thus far from leftist candidates who, you know, are getting together and just like, oh, we got to get rid of them. It's like, are you talking to the people who actually are fine with the mayor or who actually like slash love the mayor? Have you ever talked to those people? is a real question. But it's like, New York isn't the Upper West Side and the five neighborhoods in Brooklyn. And I feel like if you have that kind of mindset, which a lot of politicians and people on the left do, then you're going to have a second term of Eric Adams and you'll be scratching your head as to like, how did he get elected? How did he get reelected? It's like, it's pretty clear because your vision of New York is very myopic. And the mayor has always said his vision of New York includes all five boroughs. So, and that includes the sort of people who look like they're blue, but low-key or purple slash red. And of course, uh, the people who don't like Adams, the polls, you know, decent number of them, they don't fit together. They don't even <laughs> necessarily vote in the same contest. Yeah. I'm serious. Like, right. if you add up, like... They're the not a beautiful mosaic. And No. And and and, and, and the, the Red Beret crowd, let's say, uh, you know, and, and the John Katzenmatidis extended universe, like, those, those are different electorates they don't get to register their opinions at the same time and in the the same contest and it's hard to see either of them getting critical mass to either defeat adams in a democratic primary or to have i still think anything like a truly competitive general in this city mm-hmm. brilliant point harry i'm texting you actually right now saying brilliant point um yeah i mean before we even get to the general it we just came get... through you're not kidding <laughs> um before we even get to the general, we have to go through a primary. And, you know, there might be some, like, sacrificial lamb type candidate, um, you know, like a Rick Lazio bridesmaid type candidate is what I call them, um, where, you know, you're there, but you're not, like, doing anything really. Um, or we're going to have a substantive conversation as Democratic New Yorkers about what the vision of the city is. And in 2021, the vision was... We're all emerging from this highly traumatic experience, and there was this real fear from a lot of voting New Yorkers about crime and appearances of crime and quality of life issues and subways. And listen, even with a very choice voting system, enough New Yorkers said they wanted an uh, NYPD officer to lead the city. It's not like he stole the election. I mean, people voted for him fair and square. So we have to also recognize, like, there's there's always a hunger for that, which, you know, um, 
We had 20 years of Republican mayors. I mean, it's not like this city is like some, you know, freaking Asheville, North Carolina or something like that. Like we're, we had three decades of Pataki, like, or three terms of Pataki. Like there's a penchant for sort of moderate to right-leaning politics in this city. And the more honest we are about that, I think the the better understanding of who Eric Adams is will come into the fore. What I saw Friday were a lot of the Twitter <clears throat> hot takes of, how did New York City end up with this guy as mayor? It's because this is this. And I'm like, you know, there's a lot of reasons why people become mayor and why some people don't become mayor. Um, and yeah, I... I we are we have who we have, and I just think the focus now for a lot of people should be if they're interested in someone different is who they're going to have in twenty twenty five. And like you said, I don't know how they coalesce around one person, right? But can I just also, and this is shout out to John Malenkoff who sent me um, some data on a, a piece that I'm working on, and I was just curious about Dinkins and Adams and like just even turnout. So like a lot of these people are, you know, full on chicken little screaming at the skies, but total turnout for the Democratic primary in 1989 was a little over a million people. Mm -hmm. Okay. Total turnout for the Democratic primary in 2021 was 928,000 people. So the city has increased in size. Yeah. But the participation rate in a Democratic primary has significantly decreased over time. And in the general election, we had, in 1989, 1.8... In 1989, by the way, there, there is an incumbent Democrat who's running for another term. So that should be, juice turn out even more, right, in, in comparison, because, because Koch is there. Right, exactly. 1.8 million people turned out in the wow. general in 1989, yeah. okay? And in the general, in 2021, the city has exponentially grown, okay, in this, like, 30-some-odd years. It's 1.1 million. Like, this is, we we have a participation problem. So I think, you know, yes, Twitter is a real but not real place. But I think a lot of people who have issues with the current mayor, you know, some have been on a panel. And, I mean, it's like the, the explosive question. It's, did you vote? Not did you vote for him? Did you vote, period? And the vast majority of people who get asked that question who are screaming at the skies like, no, but, no, no, there's, there is no no but. If you didn't vote, who's to say this? Was it Wilson Good? I think Mayor Wilson Good, first Black mayor of Philadelphia. He used to say, if you don't vote, you forfeit your right to complain. Now, I don't necessarily believe that necessarily just because we're citizens and I do think that you should have a voice. But I do think that there's an element of if you have such large complaints and you can vote and you choose not to, that's sort of like, you know, my level of listening skills for you significantly decreases because you we wanna, have such an abysmal turnout. Going back to 1989, I mean, 2021, early voting. Yeah. I right. mean. Absentee. You could have voted. You could have voted for like two weeks. Yeah. Back in 89, it was one day. I'm, I couldn't right, vote yet, it. but you know. I mean. I'm always torn also, like, I early vote just because I'm usually doing stuff on election day, um, and I do like to get my sticker before it runs out because, you know, that's a whole thing. But we are, New Yorkers are, New York is late to the game in making it easier for people to vote, but we're catching up. And so there is no, um, I'm not going to say there's no excuse, but for a lot of people, we're making it very convenient um, for you to vote. And there's just a lot of folks just don't feel like municipal elections are important. And it's like, well, then you get what you get. Yeah. You get what you get. You don't get upset. For a while. And then people absolutely lose it and vote in really angry reactionary people is mm -hmm. the second part the mom almost never mentions. And, and part of the reason people don't vote, of course, is, you know, the way districts are carved and a whole bunch of other things. More backstory here than we get into this episode. Like, like often there's. People think, like, I don't really have a choice in a lot of these contests, not the citywide ones, or the statewide ones, or the legislative ones, and otherwise. And honestly, they're not always wrong. By the way, for anyone asking non-rhetorically, how did this guy get elected, there is an exhaustive, arguably exhausting, new piece up going through this uh, by Michael Lange. Uh, it's at his uh, site, which is Michael Lange, L-A-N-G-E dot N-Y-C. Titled, Can the Left Defeat Eric Adams? But it goes in granular detail through the election, the turnout numbers, how ranked choice played out. Frankly, I'd forgotten, and that's on me, The Maya Wiley was in second on election night 
Um, and it was in the, the, the progress of the ranked choices that she fell to third uh, behind Catherine Garcia. But anyways, that's there. And since he did get elected with that, let's turn it over to Josh Greenman in conversation with Eric Adams. That's at vitalcitynyc.org if you want more. And thanks, everyone. We're not going to do a regular credits thing since we want you to hear Adams, and this is going to go long. So we'll see you soon. Uh, let me just start with the question of uh, gun violence, murders, shootings, and other types of crime. My first question is, we've seen year over year, 10% decline in murder, 26% decline in shooting incidents. What To what do you attribute those drops, number one? And number two, why, while those are declining, are other things declining less or even increasing, particularly felony assault, misdemeanor assault? You don't often see that kind of divergence. What's your best explanation for why we're seeing a divergence in those trends? So those two well, questions, what's driving the, the, the gun violence decline and why is there a divergence? Well, the uh, uh, first, the uh, one uh, a, a shooting, homicide, robbery is too many. Uh, but, you know, you use indicators to do an overall analysis in a city of this size, you know, with 8.3 million people. Uh, and coming out of uh, COVID, uh, there's still a lot of uh, mental health issues that are facing the city and the country. We zeroed in, as you know, what I've always knew we had to focus on were the homicides, the shootings, and the overproliferation of guns. That was that was our number one focus. And we did a combination of the subway safety plan uh, with the governor. And then what we did was take a holistic approach to dealing with crime. We saw increases among, among young people. And so with the subway safety, with the... Uh, uh, our subway, not our subway, I'm sorry, our summer safety plan, number one. And number two, looking at those particular target areas, there was a due combination. And we wanted to make sure we could do things with young people that, have, that I don't believe we focused on before with prevention. That's why we did the summer rise program, summer youth employment, and uh, the summer, summer, um, uh, summer nights, I mean, uh, summer uh, lights basketball program. All of those things, we said we had to catch young people before they committed crimes while we go after those who we know were potential um, crime behavior. Now, to deal specifically with your assaults, the increases were not in all categories. Five out of seven, we saw decreases. We saw increased, slight increases in uh, assault, but um, the major pain in the rear were grand larceny autos. And that is why we rolled out last week a specific plan that I had the police commissioner design for us to go after those GLAs. Okay, let me ask about the neighborhood safety teams, which were rolled out, I guess, in 30 areas as uh, primarily as gun interdiction, gun seizure uh, tools, not solely, but we've seen a couple of pieces of criticism, lines of criticism, one from the stop and frisk monitor saying many of their stops are likely unlawful, and then another recently uh, in the city.nyc, they pointed to a, a sharp rise in criminal summonses for some quality of life offenses and said the neighborhood safety teams may be uh, responsible for a lot of those. Can you talk about what those teams are doing and on what basis they make the stops that they make? Yeah, uh, and a couple of things. Uh, uh, one, uh, I saw someone uh, sent out before that summonses uh, are up, arrests are up. They did a whole indicator. Uh, but what they don't show show the flip side of that is shooters are down, homicides are down. And so uh, there is a real balance to safety and justice that must be carried out, something that I believed in, something that I, I lived on uh, throughout my entire uh, uh, career. You go when you go into these communities, uh, when I do my local town halls, when I speak to my seniors, they are yelling about quality of life issues, scooters. Illegal mopeds, illegal scooters, noise complaints, uh, illegal vending, all of these things that everyday New Yorkers are saying, we don't want the erosion of our quality of life in our streets. We don't want the street walkers, the prostitutions. On, on Roosevelt Avenue, we've identified almost 57 brothels. And so police are responding 
to the concerns of their constituencies. The 311 complaints tells us what people are complaining about. Now, either uh, we can say, well, we're going to just ignore those complaints, or we're going to go in and make sure we do warnings on many occasions first. Then we're going to take action that people are ignoring the quality of life of everyday New Yorkers. No one wants someone's job sitting outside their house injecting themselves with urine. I mean, with with um, with drugs. That's not what people want. What, what's the explanation for why a criminal summons versus a, a civil summons? In I mean, in some cases, you have a clear justification where they have unpaid previous summonses or where there's a warrant out for their arrest. But if there isn't. What's the justification for, say, public urination or or public uh, drinking of alcohol for that to trigger a criminal summons versus a civil summons, especially if it's being given by the neighborhood safety team, which is only in particular parts of the city. They were created in parts of the city that had a lot of gun violence. So if you're kind of if they're a major tool implementing quality of life um, enforcement, aren't you going to get a disproportionate uh, population affected by those criminal summonses? Well, they, they're not the major tool. Uh, uh, tool. Uh, every police officer in every part of the city is told to look at those 311 complaints and respond according to what the constituencies are asking for. Go out in Queens, 109 Precinct. Uh, you're seeing actions out there. And so the goal is, is to go where the crimes are. The Bronx, uh, those precincts in the Bronx were dealing with a substantial number of shootings. It would be wrong for me to take the, the body that we have created to go after the guns and dealing with those shooters and move them to a community that's not doing, dealing with shooters. And so I don't believe, and we'll do a deep dive analysis, I don't believe that it's a disproportionate number of those summonses are coming from the neighborhood safety team. I think all the police officers are doing their job and that's working to deal with the quality of life offenses. And we shouldn't be issuing a civil uh, a criminal court summonses, and we can do a civil court uh, summons. In those cases, we can do a civil court summons. We should do that. We're not trying to give people criminal records, but we are t trying to do what we should be doing. That's correcting conditions. Okay. Let me ask about uh, prevention because you put out a big report that uh, your task force did that focused a lot on preventing gun violence in the first place. I know that you believe in cure violence, violence interruption type models. Um, can you explain how these are overseen and what the accountability mechanisms are? And relatedly, I know that this whole portfolio was moved from the Mayor's Office of Criminal Justice to DYCD, which means that it's under First Deputy Mayor Sheena Wright. Can you explain how that is or why that is the right management tool, given that I think Phil Banks is supposed to be the one kind of knitting together all of the different agency responses to ensure that they're coordinated and intelligent to prevent violence? Well, it was the right thing to do because it, it was part of the overall plan of prevention. Because what our crisis management teams were doing previously, they were re responding after an incident and tried to re prevent retaliatory actions. That was not the right way to do it. And so when you look at uh, Operation Pivot, which is now in our Department of Education, our New York City Public Schools, and then you look at what our uh, DYCD is doing, everything from the summer youth jobs uh, to the summer rising program to training all our teachers uh, and, and, and things like dyslexia to prevent crime, all the things that we're doing, dealing with our youth is part of DYCD and she fall under the partnership we made with A.T. Mitchell and the first deputy mayor. This is the first deputy mayor that's now wrapping our hands around the initiative of how do we be more preventive, investing in foster care children who falls through the system, uh, investing in those, those young people who have justice involved. And so we knew we had to bring this to the top of the food chain and partner with the crisis management team, redefine their mission to be more proactive and not reactive as they have been in the past. But is it fair to say that the deputy mayor for public safety is ultimately in charge of knitting together, weaving together prevention and, uh, you know, uh, interdiction, arrest, gun seizures, et cetera, all the both the policing and the prevention is, is that are those both in his portfolio or is it just the policing? No, it, it, he has police and probation, FDNY, uh, Department of Correction, 
uh, parks police, uh, the sheriffs, uh, all of that falls under his portfolio, and which, which I think that is the hallmark of this administration, is that we don't operate in silos. The mere fact, <coughs> fact that this went under uh, DYCD does not mean that uh, 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 Deputy Mayor Banks does not sit down with First Deputy Mayor Wright and part of those overall conversations on how do we utilize the police department. He oversees and coordinates now the police departments are meeting with our uh, superintendents and principals. This has never been done before. They meet routinely, routinely on communicating and they have developed that relationship. So the team comes together because it fits under Sheena's uh, portfolio does not mean that she's not engaged with Deputy Mayor uh, Banks. Okay. Um, I know in the campaign, you and I talked about data-driven decision-making and dashboards and all of those things. Um, what is being done to know what inputs might be responsible for various outputs in this realm? Which is to say, you've got all these things that are happening. How do you know what's working, what's not yielding the intended results, what's worth doubling down on, what's worth scrapping? Um, it becomes a very complicated mix. So I'm, I'm, I'm interested in understanding how you disaggregate the effective tools from the ineffective tools. Yeah, well, uh, I, I think that uh, that's the purpose of having a dashboard. That's the purpose of having what I like to say a cockpit like the pilot has it so you can see uh, what's effective and what's not. One of the perfect examples, uh, you know, you covered the city, uh, you saw the overproliferation of encampments all over the city. Uh, and if one is honest right now about that, you don't see it anymore. Uh, and, even, and when you do identify it, it is immediately rectified within a short period of, a period of time. That's because we have a series of dashboards that allows us to identify if there's a, an encampment who responded? How do we correct it? And we can look at that and do an analysis. Every week, we analyze each one of these dashboards. They don't just sit out there in the universe. We analyze, are we doing something effective? How do we correct the issue uh, that we are looking to uh, uh, co uh, correct? And that is the purpose. If you didn't have those dashboards, uh, those spreadsheets, all of this technology that we can review um, so that we're making sure we're getting the product we want, then we would go days after days not knowing what part we must adjust and what part we must change to get it right. Right. Here's another way to put the same question. What is on your dashboard that's not on the public dashboard that I can't see? What are you looking at that helps inform your decisions as an executive about what you want to lean into and what you want to turn away from? Well, well, first, all everything we have is is part of freedom of information. So we don't keep anything that's secret uh, unless it falls within the boundaries of uh, privileged information with our uh, our council or uh, elsewise. So all of this information under FOIL is available to uh, is available to the public. The public can see uh, the pictures that of an encampment that we eventually clean up. The public can see how you know the notices we put out. So anyone that in make inquiry of something similar, something simple as we want to see how you're monitoring the encampments in the city. You can but just to be clear on this one, I was not to interrupt, but to be clear on this one, I'm asking specifically like on gun violence and on other kinds of violence in the city. Mm -hmm. What is it that you're looking at uh, to know what is working and what's not working that might be enlightening for the public to understand? Like which tools are the most effective in places where you're doing, you know, cure violence, and you're doing neighborhood safety teams, and you're doing you know five, six, seven other tools. There's a lot in your uh, blueprint for community safety. How do we know which ones are yielding dividends and which ones are are kind of dead ends? Because not everything works, right? I mean, you know this as well as anyone. Sometimes very well-intended tools don't work. So how do you figure out which well-intended tools are not working and which well-intended tools are working and deserve a lot more investment? Right. Okay. Your, your question was, how do we, what am I seeing that the public is not seeing? Now, if you're asking me, what am I seeing that the public's not seeing? I'm going to say nothing. If you're saying what tools I use to determine if something is successful or not, then I will point to the police department already has a report that they uh, put out showing uh, where precincts 
uh, have increased in these various crimes from homicide to grand larceny orders to shooting. That's already done. And so if I say I want to put in the plan of having 110,000 summer youth employment, I can monitor. Did we reach that target? And if we didn't, why didn't we reach that target? If I want to look at how many children um, or, or how we increasing the number of children that are in school, I can look at and break down which schools we didn't reach the uh, target of maintaining the number of children that go to schools. So all of these is not it's not so much the tools used to maintain them. It is looking at those tools and pinpointing where we've fallen short. Got it. You talk a lot about upstream, downstream um, in a number of different issues, but particularly in public safety. And uh, your task force put out the blueprint for community safety. I'm curious, it's a little bit of a thought experiment, but if policing had stayed exactly the same as it was before you became the mayor, but all of the other things that are talked about in that blueprint had gone whole hog, what kind of crime decline would we be seeing? So I'm trying to isolate the effect of the police versus the effect of all of these preventative, important preventative strategies that you cite. Do you have a sense of that or a gut feeling of that? I'll, I'll, I'll expect that question again, because I didn't, I didn't fully comprehend uh, it. I'm, I'm trying to understand. So your blueprint talks about a lot of preventative strategies, housing, mental health, uh, you know, a series of very, very important interventions. It doesn't talk that much about policing except to improve police community relations, which is, of course, important. What I'm curious about is, can you isolate how important those tools are versus policing? And if policing hadn't changed under Mayor Adams, but all these other things had been done, would we be seeing crime declines now? Or okay. are the crime declines largely a result of policing? Got it. No, I got it. That's a great question. Uh, okay. the I, I don't recall exactly what book I read. Uh, but we don't judge the non-shot shooting. We judge the shooting. And all the experts would tell you across the country, if not the globe, how challenging it is to say, okay, Eric, you did dyslexia screening for every child in the Department of edu Education, something that was never done before in the history. How much of an impact did it stop those 30 to 40 percent of children of people who are on Rikers Island are dyslexic. So it's really extremely difficult to do so. What we do know is that we created a subway safety plan and crime has dropped in the subway system at historical levels. We know we included we, we created a summer safety plan. We're watching young people uh, not being victims and participating in crime. So you look at these entities and it's difficult to say so. And uh, exactly what tool did it? It's a combination. We need both. You cannot say, let's remove police from the equation and just let these upstream initiative happen and you're going to deal with the crisis. Because someone has to respond to the shootings. Someone has to go after the guns. Someone has to go after the gangs. It's, it's a combination of uh, intervention and prevention, a term that I use over and over again. You get that combination right, you're going to get the results you're looking for. Gotcha. When you were a cop and a police captain, I'm sure you came to very strong conclusions about how to reduce gun violence. You are a person who's reflective. You've changed a lot of things over your life. How has your view of gun violence and how to prevent it and how to drive it down and how to prosecute it or whatever changed from when you were police officer Eric Adams and police captain Eric Adams to now that you're Mayor Eric Adams? It, has, it hasn't changed much because the fundamentals are still the same. I knew that we were not doing enough prevention work uh, uh, while I was policing. I took notes of that, that if I'm at the helm and I can make the determination, we have to do more prevention work in order to prevent it because we can't just police our way out of it. I also was very strong on if you carry the gun and use a gun, you should be incarcerated for that. I've never had a belief that people who carry guns and use guns, and I brought that police belief here, and that's why I have been extremely vociferous about laws that don't hold people accountable for carrying guns. My, my beliefs are the same uh, in that area, and also believe in community policing, and you know people should be in the community hearing from the residents. So the difference between being police officer Eric Adams and Mayor Eric Adams is that I did not have to wait for other people to make the decisions that I felt strongly about. I'm um, able to implement policies that's going to do what I saw in the, in the world of policing. These are the things I believe in, and now I'm able to, to actualize them.
Another similar question. You used to carry a weapon yourself, obviously, as an officer and then as an off-duty officer. Uh, what would you say to the young men like those? There was a recent Center for Justice Innovation study that talked to young gun carriers in Brooklyn, and they said they carried guns to protect themselves from the ops and the cops. What would you say to those people, those young people? You talk to them directly to dissuade them from carrying. First of all, it's not acceptable. And I, I even hear elected officials from time to time saying, well, the reason police, children carry guns is to protect themselves. Uh, we should never surrender to that mindset and that concept. Uh, the first thing I would do is more than uh, talking. I think that, you know, young people need visuals. I would sit down and show them a series of what, something that we're putting together now, a series of victims of shooters. I was having them spend time, as one doctor did in Kings County, of going to an emergency room and seeing uh, what happens uh, when a young person is shot, uh, seeing some of these funerals. I spoke at a funeral about a year or so ago of a young man who was there and he died and his family members were all in disarray and crying. But that same young man was, was part of uh, shootings. And so I think we need to sh act, have these conversations in a real way, but we also need to show our young people what gun violence is because we romanticize it everywhere from social media to movies to television. And so that impact on the development of a young mind makes it seem as though, hey, you could just go to the next week, the next episode, but it's real. And I would have, I believe it needs to be more than just a conversation. We need to display it. Okay. What are, uh, can you cite any policing policies, programs, practices that you want to try, but you haven't tried yet to drive down gun violence in particular? And I'll just throw out one, but please don't overly focus on this one because I know, you know, there was talk about scanners in the subway entrances as just a possibility, either technological or some other tool. Are there things that you're that you're interested in either as a pilot or as a broader program that's not yet on our radar that, that you want to think about that you want to try to use? Yes, uh, 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 yes. Uh, uh, one, everything is viewed through the prism of intervention and prevention. It's, it's not just uh, intervention, but you you alluded to uh, scanners. There's new technology out there that was some of the some of the things that I was looking at when I was in Israel, which is really a startup nation. They say that for a reason because of their technology. Uh, there are a lot of advancement and really uh, seeing if someone is hiding a gun on their person, carrying a gun onto a subway system and things like that. We are still drilling down in the technology. We have a major group that we meet with uh, once a month of all of our uh, security leaders in our major corporate firms, and they're part of this security advisory. They are using some of these tools now. Uh, we want to make sure that it's 100% safe and it's 100% doesn't violate anyone's rules, I mean, uh, 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 constitutional rights. But I'm a big believer that we can use technology better to identify if someone is possessing a legal gun. Now, it becomes complicated with the Supreme Court decision. Uh, we've created an environment now. Uh, where everyone has basically the right to carry a gun. And that is going to be a real challenge for law enforcement agencies across the globe. But I want to see technology used more. I don't think we're using enough. And then I want to use technology of making it safer to own a gun. Uh, there's some clear biometrics that you can use. There are clear ways of making sure a gun is not discharged if the right person is not, the licensed person is not have, holding it, fingerprint technology. So I would like to see biometrics used more, and I would like to see other technologies so we don't um, have uh, the, these misuse of guns in our city. At least for the new guns, if not for the ones already circulating, right? Let me ask uh, something that I know you, you have very strong feeling about, and you know, when you have a heart out, you can go, by the way. I know yes. that you're... you're, you're um, the city is safer, safer than most, but we have very, very concentrated violence, as your uh, blueprint notes, in particular communities. And it happens that the same communities that were often the most strongly opposed to Bloomberg-style stop and frisk are the ones, um, they both, they both uh, suffer from under-policing sometimes and they suffer from over-policing. How do you square that circle to get them the policing that they need while 
uh, not risking that uh, pernicious over-policing that we've seen in this in this city at times. And, and, and that's a damn good question. And that's what we have accomplished. You know, many people who talk about stop, question, and frisk, a constitutional authority that police departments have, uh, people often miss the question part of it. Uh, many people that talk about, the, about it romanticize it. If you remove uh, that constitutional authority away from police, you are making those communities uh, more dangerous. The police must have the right to do a preliminary investigation that they believe someone is about to commit a crime. But we have to send a strong message. That is not going to be used as an indicator of if you are a good police officer or not. That's what we did in the past. We judge police by how many of those stop, question, and frisk they conducted every night. We remove those incentives away. And I'm on the ground in precincts talking to police officers as the mayor of the city saying, we are not going out and abusing our authority to fight crime. That can't happen. And by seeing me give that message in a very clear way, speaking with uh, hundreds of officers, uh, visiting them, speaking with them, and engaging this conversation, I think we have really turned the corner. We're a long way from the uh, hundreds of thousands of stops we used to do, but you still must use that tool. I would never tell police officers not to use that tool. Josh, if you call someone and state someone is on my stoop and I believe they put a gun in their waistband and that police officer is not allowed to come and conduct a review or an investigation, we're endangering your family and we're endangering our community. And that's not going to happen in this administration. Josh, Last thing, if you got the time, one more quick question, if that's all right. good, good clearance yeah. rates. Uh, and this will be the last one. Clearance yes. rates are uh, lower for shootings than they are for homicides, number one. And they're lower than they used to be. They've come up a bit over the last year, but they're still I don't have them in front of me exactly what they are. But 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 they're too low. You want every shooting, every homicide cleared, right? Yes. What's your strategy? What's your strategy for driving up clearance rates? What is the key to doing that? Besides police trust, I'm sure is very important, and then some of the tools you talked about. But how do you, how do you do it? Uh, good detectives. Uh, you know, we need uh, you know good, great detectives. We have we have a, a police force that is hurting in population. Uh, a large number of of men and women are going to other police departments or don't want to stay uh, in policing career. Uh, we're hemorrhaging. You know, many people don't realize uh, that we have a law enforcement crisis in our in our, uh, uh, our country. We have a criminal justice crisis. Let me say that. Because when you speak to the DAs, uh, they'll tell you the same thing. They can't get DAs. They can't get lawyers. When you speak to the Department of Correction, they can't get correction officers. Probation, can't get probation officers. And that's the same thing with police. Uh, we are hemorrhaging police. And we can't just overpopulate the detective division and leave out those everyday men and women who are on patrol doing their job. Doing their job. The, the, the detective ranks are suffering uh, right now. I, I spoke with the president of the detective union as we look at ways to make it more attractive. Uh, but our clearance rates, the numbers uh, are steady and we are doing a job in clearing a lot about these homicide cases and we're going to continue to do so. But we are having a real manpower problem in policing and, and, and specifically, but manpower problem in the city. And this is something that all of my mayors are sharing with me across the country. F-A-Q. F -A -Q.